Welcome. I'm glad to be back with you live this Wednesday or whenever you're listening to this. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and I have been absent the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, I was pleased to speak at the National Center for Padre Pio in Bartow, Pennsylvania, and then I traveled to the Malvern Retreat Center about an hour away. Uh, unfortunately, in my travels, I fell victim to whatever bug is currently going around, so I spent the better part of the last week in bed. But I am back in the saddle and glad to be here with you today. And we are going to talk today about what the Bible says about true worship and how the basic spirituality of a Catholic Christian is Eucharistic spirituality and how all other spiritualities and Christian action from the very days of the Apostles have proceeded uh, precisely from the altar. You know, just last week we celebrated the ascension of the Lord who made the promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. He is among us with his Holy Spirit. His kingdom is present within us as the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, and he is truly present, especially in the Holy Eucharist. And so there is, understandably, a great emphasis in Catholic spirituality on the Holy Mass. So we're going to look at worship in the Bible, beginning with Moses up to the Apostles in the early Church. But to start off, next Sunday is the Feast of Pentecost, where the Church received the Holy Spirit in the very room where Jesus celebrated the first Mass and took upon herself the continuation of his earthly ministry. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all assembled together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound similar to that of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were sitting. Then there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, is God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And by the way, these two terms are used interchangeably today, and both translate the Latin word spiritus, which literally means breath or wind. So the translation depends on context. But when you look at old Catholic books, including the Dewey Reims Bible, you'll find that the word spirit is typically used when describing the action of God generically, as in the Old Testament. But references to the third person of the Trinity are translated Holy Ghost. That's because in informal classic English, there is this distinction, that the word spirit may be used as an abstraction. For example, the spirit of the age or the spirit of Vatican II, team spirit. We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? However, the word ghost referred to the seat of personality, that is, to an individual, a person. And the Holy Ghost is a divine person and not a mere force or abstraction. But in any case, in modern English, the terms are basically interchangeable, and I will use them in that way. The Holy Ghost is also known as the Advocate, the Comforter, the Paraclete, and the Spirit of Truth. Now, our Lord spoke often of the Holy Ghost, and one of the most solemn occasions being in Matthew 28, 19, uh, when he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And on certain occasions, the Holy Ghost appears in visible form. When Christ was baptized, the Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. At Pentecost, he descended with a mighty rushing wind and then rested over the apostles as tongues of fire. These are all symbolic of the action of the Holy Ghost. 
the dove representing the gentleness with which the Holy Spirit works in our souls, the wind representing the strengthening of our will, and the fire representing zeal and fervor, and especially the illumination of the intellect that comes with his grace. And that's what Christ promised to the apostles. The Nicene Creed says that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, that does not mean that he began to exist at a later time than the Father and the Son, or that he was created. He he proceeded from them from all eternity. So uh, one analogy would be the warmth of a fire, which both exists and proceeds at the same time. See, there's no fire without warmth, so if there were an eternal fire, there would be an eternal warmth proceeding. The Holy Spirit's also understood as the eternal and mutual love of the Father and the Son. But instead of a a mere feeling, he is a person, a divine person. And as God, he is equal to the Father and the Son. Uh, The Holy Spirit dwells in the church as the source of her life and sanctifies her members through his grace. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our soul at baptism and remains uh, so long as we're in the state of grace. And he gives us his seven gifts in confirmation, which is like our own personal Pentecost. And speaking of Pentecost, it was at the first Christian Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension of our Lord, that the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and their companions. After the ascension, the apostles gathered together in the upper room with the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Holy Women and other disciples, numbering about 120 persons in all. Which brings me to something of a pet peeve. Um, You know, in in many of the modern Jesus movies, the Last Supper is depicted as taking place in this kind of a low-roofed hovel with Christ and the apostles sitting on the floor like they're toasting marshmallows around a campfire. This is not the upper room that's described in the scriptures. Jesus tells the apostles in Matthew's gospel, go to a certain man in the city and say to him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I intend to celebrate the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, the Bible doesn't name the man in question, but according to tradition, it was either the house of Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, or possibly the family home of the disciple uh, John Mark, um, that is, Mark the Evangelist. Now, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it was a large hall furnished as a dining room. It was here that Christ showed himself after his resurrection where the election of Matthias to replace Judas took place, and, of course, the descent of the Holy Ghost. Uh, This is where the first Christians assembled for the breaking of the bread, and where Peter and John came uh, when they had given testimony after the cure of the man born lame. And Peter came to the, the, the assembled church here after his liberation from prison. It was likely the location of the Council of the Apostles from Acts 15, and it, it was for a while, the only church in Jerusalem. It is The upper room is the mother of all churches, and it was known as the Church of the Apostles. St. Paula of Rome visited in uh, the 5th century, and, and it was only destroyed by the, by the Muslims in the 11th century, and it has been twice rebuilt. The point is that uh, the upper room was in the relatively lavish home of a rich man, likely in the style of a Roman villa. Right? The movie Ben-Hur provides a good example. And the upper room was at least large enough to accommodate 120 people who gathered there for nine days in prayer, from which sprung the custom of the nine days prayer we call a novena. And, you know, being the presumably secure dwelling of a person of influence, it was considered a safe haven for the apostles and the early church. The apostles gathered there after the crucifixion for fear of the Jews, as scripture says. 
and this in fulfillment of Jesus' promise and instruction. Behold, I am sending upon you the gift promised by my Father. Therefore, stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And that's talking about the descent of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The book of Acts tells us the church in Jerusalem gathered on Sundays. And testimony from the second century tells us that Christian assemblies were generally held in the homes of wealthy believers with the altar at one end and the people divided into men on one side and women on the other, with a porter at the door and deacons keeping order. The Acts, the letters of St. Paul, the epistles of St. James, all testify to the community gathering together and gives, you know, uh, advice and and, uh, counsel on how to keep order. Even when the church was persecuted, they still gathered in a space large enough to accommodate the assembly, the catacombs, for example. What I'm getting at is that this modern picture of the early liturgy being a handful of believers gathered in a circle around the kitchen table is a modern fable. And that's one of the reasons we'll be talking about worship from a biblical perspective later in the program. Uh, For now, we know that the Holy Spirit descended on the early church at Pentecost and will dwell in the church until the end of time. Jesus said in John 14, verses 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. The spirit protects the church from destruction. By by the death of the last apostle, the church had so spread throughout the civilized world of the day that St. Paul could say, Their voice has gone out over all the world and their words to the end of the earth. The Holy Ghost gave testimony to Christ and strengthened strengthened the apostles to give testimony to Christ. As Jesus said, when the advocate comes whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf and you also will be my witnesses. And that's no nonsense. Okay, off to a good start. There's a lot more to come. We are going to talk about worship from a biblical perspective, starting all the way back with uh, Moses at the burning bush and, uh, you know, up to the apostles and the early church. And we're also going to talk about how Christian spirituality, Catholic spirituality is foundationally, no matter um, what form it may take, you know, Franciscan or Dominican or Ignatian or Norbertine or whatever, um, that at root, all Christian spirituality, Catholic spirituality, is Eucharistic spirituality, that the action of the church always proceeds from the altar. And we will see how that uh, is testified to in the Holy Scriptures. Also, I'm going to talk about active participation. That's been a a watchword of of the uh, uh, church since the liturgical movement of the mid-20th century, certainly Vatican II. So what constitutes active participation, and what can you do when you can't actively participate? All that and more when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
Jesus said in Matthew 26, Stay awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation. According to St. Ephraim, Jesus, who feared nothing, experienced fear and asked to be freed from death, although he knew it was impossible. How much more must we persevere in prayer before temptation assails us, so that we may be freed when the test has come? May God grant that we may withstand temptation and carry out His will in all things. Logan, what has Virgin Most Powerful Radio done for you? The Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I gotta say, I've been a listener for about a year now, and it's really helped me grow closer to my faith and the fact that I'm listening and I'm getting unsugar-coated, clear, charity with clarity, Catholicism. And it has really helped me even, you know, grow so much deeper in my faith as a young man and discern the priesthood and have a love for Jesus Christ. And this is still seen on the Terry and Jesse show on Virgin Most Powerful, the unsugar-coated, clear truth of our Catholic faith that is so lacking today. It's almost like the Terry and Jesse show. It's the orange juice Catholicism that's filling things up. I just need to give my shout-out, my praise. I'm just so appreciative. It just really helped me, and I know, you know people want to hear this. It inspires me to want to speak it, and it inspires me to even go as far as discerning the priesthood to think I should speak this. We need to stand up for our beautiful faith. This is the unsugar-coated beauty, and this is just what I've seen on the Terry and Jesse show. I encourage listeners to start donating and support this cause. It has just truly impacted my life, and all I just want to give is some praise to it. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. And the Council of Trent affirms, the Second Vatican Council reaffirms, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, the Eucharist, meaning the Mass, is the source and summit of the Christian life. It is the starting point and the goal, the Alpha and the Omega, because the Eucharist, meaning the Blessed Sacrament, is Jesus. Hence, worship must be central to the life of the Catholic Christian. And that's why today I want to take a look at what Holy Scripture says about true worship. Uh, to begin with, we discover that worship is first and foremost an encounter with the living and most holy God. All the way back in Exodus 3, God tells Moses from the burning bush, Do not approach. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. At God's command, Moses removed his sandals and covered his face. And these were acts of reverence to show his unworthiness before God. Now, we tend to think of Jesus as our friend, and he is, but he's also our sovereign Lord. And it is the sacrifice of Christ that we offer to God the Father in worship. The, the, the sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary made present. And to, to approach that, to approach God frivolously, uh, shows a lack of reverence and really a lack of sincerity. I mean, 
how authentic is your worship if you approach God casually or, or worse, thoughtlessly? So the first thing that we should do in regard to worship is to examine our own attitude, if it's suitable for approaching the Most Holy God. You know, for a hundred years, the liturgical movement promoted the concept of active participation in the Mass. In fact, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Vatican II Constitution on the Liturgy, made the full, conscious, and active participation of the faithful the primary motive for any changes in the liturgy. And when you look at the scriptures, you can understand why. Uh, in the Old Testament, God gave his people many rituals and many specific instructions to follow. All the many rituals in the book of Leviticus, for example, are meant to teach the people valuable lessons about their relationship with God and their special mission as his chosen people, right down to the, the way they, uh, all the ritual washing and the way that they uh, prepare the sacrifices and wash the vessels and so on. But over time, people became indifferent to the meaning of these rituals, and they began to lose touch with God's requirement of holiness. Now, what that means for you and me is whatever form of the Mass you attend, whether you assist at the traditional Latin Mass or the Anglican Ordinariate Mass or the Novus Ordo Mass in whatever language, if it appears to you that the Mass is just a lot of dry, meaningless rituals, then it's up to you to rediscover the original meaning and purpose behind each and every part of the Mass. You know, take responsibility for your liturgical relationship with God. That is the way your worship will be revitalized. You know, your participation at Mass, your participation in worship is only going to be as meaningful as your investment in it. Now, we're going to talk more about active participation a little later. For now, let's turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, where we read, The Lord said to Moses, Give these instructions to the people of Israel. The burnt offerings you present are a pleasing aroma to me. See to it that they are brought at the appointed times and offered according to my instructions. See, offerings had to be brought regularly and presented according to prescribed rituals by the priests. So, from the beginning, true worship of God was ordered and liturgical and communitarian. See, the Bible knows nothing of worship that is, that is uh, spiritual but not religious. Also, the, the ritual preparation of the various kinds of offerings, the different animals and fruits of the earth, that took time and effort. And this gave the people the opportunity to prepare their hearts for worship. And this is true for us today. I mean, the, the people no longer prepare the bread and wine for the sacrifice of the mass. But we should take time to prepare for worship come to Mass a little early, to spend a few moments in prayer before the liturgy begins, to offer that Mass for your intentions. So because if your heart isn't ready, your worship is not going to be as meaningful. And by contrast, we get much more out of Mass, and I'm sure it's much more pleasing to God, when our hearts are prepared to come before Him in a spirit of thankfulness. And we take the time to, to make ready to assist at Mass with attention, reverence, and devotion, as the old uh, devotional books say. And, and speaking of participation brings us to music and the fact that worship and music go hand in hand. The Psalms are songs that were used in the synagogue and the temple worship in Jesus' day, and they remain an integral part of the Holy Mass and form the foundation of the Liturgy of the Hours. 
Uh, and no doubt you, you've often been admonished to join in singing the responses and, you know, the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Angus Dei, etc., as well as singing along with the hymns. And you have no doubt heard that St. Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. Well, what he really said was, he who sings well prays twice. And he was not talking about congregational hymn singing, but the chanting of the Mass and the office by priests and religious. In any case, in 1 Chronicles 25, we read how David instituted music for temple worship. Because music, or worship rather, involves the whole person. And music helps to lift the heart and mind to God. I think that's you know, particularly true of the Gregorian chant settings for the Psalms. Also, you know, even with the, with the hymns that we sing, the language of poetry can often more comprehensively express profound concepts than even the most comprehensive prose. You know, and through that great patrimony of liturgical music, especially the Psalms, especially the Gregorian chant, Catholics have reflected upon their needs and shortcomings as well as celebrated God's greatness for, for centuries, for millennia. You and I stand in that tradition which goes all the way back to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, turning to worship in the New Testament, we encounter the visit of the Magi to the infant Jesus. Matthew 2.11 says, And when they entered the house, they beheld the child with Mary his mother. Falling to their knees, they paid him homage. Then they opened their treasure chests and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Worship is about bringing the best we have to Christ. The Magi brought gifts and worshipped Jesus for who he was. This is the essence of true worship, honoring Christ for who he is and being willing to give him what's most valuable to you. Right? The priest in persona Christi offers the once-for-all sacrifice of Calvary to God the Father, while you and I offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as St. As Peter says that we must do. God is the, the all-good, all-just, almighty creator of the universe, and he is worthy of the best we have to give. But, but how many people today fail to do so? I mean, even fail to do so at all. You think of the Magi, <clears throat> they traveled thousands of miles to see the newborn king of the Jews. And when they finally found him, they responded with joy and worship and, and precious gifts. Now, compare that to the approach that, I mean, so many people often take today. You know, they expect God to come looking for them, and, and when he finds them, to explain himself, prove who he is, and give them gifts. But as followers of Christ, we still seek and worship Jesus today, like the Magi, not for what we can get, but for who he is. And we can and should make reparation for those who don't. Because the Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary made truly present for us sacramentally. St. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and following. For what I received from the Lord I handed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same fashion, after the supper, he took also the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. 
And so as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, literally a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? That's where we get the term holy communion. It comes from the scriptures. Now, St. Paul is teaching those very early Christians that the Last Supper was the first Mass, that Christ changed the bread and wine into his body and blood at the Last Supper and empowered the apostles and their successors, the bishops and priests of the church, to do the same, down to this day, when he commanded them, do this in memory of me. Now, as a Catholic, you know that Christ is present in the Holy Mass. pardon me, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, Christ is present in his minister, in his word when it's proclaimed, in the congregation when they pray or sing, and most especially in the Blessed Sacrament. That is why authentic Catholic spirituality is fundamentally Eucharistic, because authentic Catholic spirituality proceeds from authentic worship. Let's go back. Let's just look at the basic definition of spirituality. Spirituality uh, is a set of observances that puts us in touch with the sacred uh, and motivates us for the love of God to practice the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. In other words, spirituality is to live out in a practical way the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. So we have the Franciscan spirituality, which highlights poverty, and Jesuit spirituality, which focuses on the spiritual exercises, and Dominican spirituality, which focuses on preaching, Carmelite spirituality, which is about contemplative prayer, etc., etc. All of these spiritualities can be helpful, but they do not replace the basic spirituality that comes from the most important event in the life of Christ, which is the Paschal mystery, his death and resurrection, made present for us in the Holy Eucharist. I started this segment with that famous quote, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. Catechism of the Catholic Church goes on to say, the other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely, Christ himself. This means that the starting point for Catholic spirituality is the altar of the Lord Jesus. The risen Lord gathers, teaches, and nourishes his followers all throughout the centuries, as uh, as Sacrosanctum Concilium would have it, at the table of his body and blood, and then sends them forth to continue his mission of proclaiming the good news and building up the kingdom of God. The altar, therefore, is central to our faith as Christians. Because it is at the altar, at the table of his body and blood, that Jesus makes himself known to us in the breaking of the bread, just as he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we'll talk about that more and continue with our discussion of worship and Eucharistic spirituality when we return right after these messages with lots more no-nonsense Catholics. Stay with us.
Here's a great way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Do you have an old car you want to get rid of, motorcycle, RV, or boat? Simply call 855-500-7433. And when they sell that vehicle, a portion of that money comes right back to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It's an easy way to do it. I want to thank you for it. Call 855-500-7433. God love you and your family. This is a catechetical minute from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. God is love, and love is his first gift, containing all others. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 733. Everyone who has been given the breath of life, has been given a puzzle to solve. To live well and happily is a mystery we try to unravel daily. Love is the answer that solves the mystery of life, and unlocks the door to joy. Father, pour out your spirit upon us, that we may live in the light of your love. This has been a Catechetical Minute, from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking before the break about uh, how Catholic spirituality proceeds from the altar, from the table of the body and blood of the Lord, and that Christ makes himself known to us in the breaking of the bread. This is the 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 term in the book of Acts for uh, the Holy Mass, and that he does this just as he did. I mentioned the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story from Luke 24, had these two uh, disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem after the crucifixion, and then the risen Lord falls in with them on the road to Jericho there, but they don't recognize him. But he, you know, asks them questions, and then he explains to them how all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. And then when they stop to eat, they finally recognize him when he blesses and breaks the bread. And then he vanishes. So we have this, you know, uh, kind of impromptu liturgy of the word, followed by a liturgy of the Eucharist, where, where uh, you know, Christ is invisible. He becomes invisible. He vanishes, and yet remains present under the form of the of the bread that he is blessed. And so they immediately rise from this Eucharistic table and return to Jerusalem to tell the apostles they've seen the risen Christ. Just like at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles in the upper room where Jesus had instituted the Eucharist, that room that became the first Christian church. 
and then they set forth from that Eucharistic table to begin their preaching and the continuation uh, to this very day of the earthly ministry of Christ. Um, and, and so it's about going forth. The, the final words of the Mass are ite misa est, go it is dismissal, that's the way it's normally translated. But misa is a form of misio, which is the Latin for mission. Hence the alternative dismissal in the Novus Ordo, let us go forth to love and serve the Lord. Right? Ite misa est, it is, it is mission. Right, uh, Saint Peter Julian Amard was a 19th century priest uh, and uh, very influential in restoring the medieval practice of Eucharistic devotion. And remember, this was a time of you know the beginning of the liturgical movement, the rise of the great Gothic revival. <clears throat> and Saint Peter Amard's Eucharistic spirituality didn't spring full grown from some mystical experience like you know Paul on the road to Damascus, but rather progressively. He was visitor general for the Society of Mary, so he traveled throughout France to inspect the various Marist communities, and he became familiar with the practice of Eucharistic worship at a visit to Paris in 1849, uh, when he met with the members of the Association of Nocturnal Adorers, who had established the um, exposition and perpetual adoration of the Blessed Sacrament at the Basilica of Our Lady of Victories. So they had, uh, you know, perpetual adoration. There was always someone there with the Blessed Sacrament. But at nighttime, you know, when their work was done, they would go there and have exposition, hence the association of nocturnal adorers. Well, a couple of years later, 1851, uh, St. Uh, Peter Julian moved to establish a Marist community dedicated to Eucharistic adoration. But his desire to establish a separate fraternity promoting adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was not uh, seen as part of the charism of the Marists, right? So eventually, <clears throat> pardon me, he left the Society of Mary to found the Congregation of the Blessed Sacrament. And according to the rule uh, that he established, a comprehensive Eucharistic spirituality encompasses three aspects, namely celebration, contemplation, and mission. So celebration, um, you know, the, I, I went to the website of the uh, congregation now, uh, and they, they refer to celebration as um, being gathered at the table, right? The celebration of the Eucharist, according to, this is according to St. Peter Julian Amard's Rule of Life, the celebration of the Eucharist joyfully proclaims the marvels God has accomplished in our history. Daily we give thanks for the new covenant which God has sealed once for all in the blood of his Son and which he renews in his ever-faithful love. So for Christians, for Catholics, the Paschal mystery, the dying and rising of Jesus Christ is God's greatest act of salvation. And by our union with Christ in the sacrament, we die to sin and rise to new life with him. Thus, we experience the power of the Eucharist to renew and to transform us. And uh, to quote the rule again, we offer to the Father our own lives along with the hopes and sufferings of all those with whom we are working to build up the kingdom. So that's celebration. That's the, the, the first aspect. <clears throat> the second is remaining at the table or contemplation. The rule says we internalize the celebration of the Lord's Passover by a prayer that makes our whole life a continuation of our Eucharists. 
our response to this presence of Christ is to enter into the dynamism of the Eucharist with a prayer of adoration, of praise and thanksgiving, of reconciliation and intercession as the church for the world. Unquote. The Passover of the Lord Jesus, right, the, the Paschal mystery, is at the center of God's redemptive plan. It is also the source of contemplation of the mystery of God's redemptive plan. And Christ's present in, presence in the sacrament calls for a prayer of presence and reflection on all that God has wrought throughout salvation history. And it makes us increasingly more aware of and grateful for God's faithfulness and love. And that, for St. Peter Amart, is the heart of Eucharistic adoration. So, celebration, being gathered at the table, contemplation, or remaining at the table, leads to mission, which is being sent from the table. Uh, according to his rule of life, we seek to understand all human reality in the light of the Eucharist, source and summit of the life of the Church. We discern in this sacrament a call to share in the life and mission of the Lord, and we give priority to activities that manifest the riches and demands of the Eucharistic mystery in all its dimensions. All right, that's pretty lofty. But as I said before, the, the final act of the celebration of the Eucharist is the dismissal, the sending, the altar, the, the table of the Lord, if you will, <clears throat> inevitably leads to mission. The two disciples uh, of Emmaus ran from their table of their encounter with the risen Christ back to Jerusalem to announce that they had seen him precisely in the breaking of the bread. The apostles, filled with the fire and power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, left the cenacle, the upper room, where they had shared the Last Supper with Jesus, where Jesus said the first Mass to begin the your church's universal mission. In every place and circumstance across 20 centuries, the followers of Jesus have found inspiration at the altar, at the Eucharistic table, to go forth in his name and preach the gospel, to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, heal the sick, clothe the naked, counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish the sinner, all of the spiritual and corporal works of mercy proceeding from the altar of the Holy Eucharist. And we who gather at that sacred table, we who meet Christ in his word and in the sacrament and in each other, are called to bring his life and love to those around us through committing our own lives to witness and to service. St. Peter Julian Amor, St. Francis, St. Bernard, St. Ignatius, St. Dominic, uh, St. Rita, St. Joan of Arc, all the men and women who have been raised to the altars of the church have exemplified in their own lives this same uh, sending forth from the Holy Eucharist, from the altar, as they lived the fruits of a rich Eucharistic life of faith and service. And you and I are called to do the same, and that's no nonsense. Hey, uh, before we move on to our, our next and uh, related topic. Um, I want to mention the 17th of June. That's um, next month, the middle of next month. Uh, there are still some seats left for the 
annual men's conference that we have here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. And I want you to, if you are a man, uh, if you have, especially if you have an adult son, you bring him along, talk to your friends, uh, go to vmpr.org or call the office at 877-526-2151 and um, set your, get your tickets now, set aside your place uh, at this conference because um, if tradition holds, it will sell out, okay? It's one of our two most popular conferences of the year. And this year, very special reunion of the Sons of Thunder, both <laughs> Jesse and Johnny Romero together again, uh, speaking about men's spirituality. So if you are a man, if you are a Catholic, if you want to be uh, re-energized in your Catholic faith and uh, and and really be instructed and counseled about being a Catholic man and a Catholic father especially, I, espe- uh, I, I encourage you to uh, make your reservation now. Get your tickets now. Call 877-526-2151 or visit vmpr.org to register now. Okay. And we were talking uh, in the last segment about active participation at Mass and how important the Fathers of Vatican II considered uh, active participation. We talked about the the classic idea of assisting at Mass with attention, reverence, and devotion. But what happens when you can't, what happens when you are impeded, you know, is your active participation essential to the mass? That's really the question I wanted to ask. And I was very fortunate uh, that yesterday I ran into an article that may very well reflect the way you have felt at one time or another. And I certainly, uh, the way I have felt about this very issue. And it was posted on the lamp magazine. Oh, pardon me. I beg your pardon. Oh. Um, still uh, the aftermath of my uh, sickness last week. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about this article called How Parents Participate at Mass on a Full, Conscious, Active, and Fruitful Celebration by a fellow named Jake New. Okay, all of that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Hello, my name is Jesse Romero. I want to invite you to the 2023 Men's Conference with who? The Romero Brothers. We're the original Sons of Thunder, myself and Johnny Romero, my younger brother. You're going to hear some inspirational, orthodox, full-contact Catholicism. So I'm inviting you June 17th, 2023, at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel. That's on a Saturday. Men's Conference with the Romero Brothers. God bless you. Keep the faith. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know? That's right. If God gave us a lot, 
and I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people. You know, I got five kids. I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. As I mentioned before the break, I ran into an article that was posted on the Lamp Magazine website back on the 19th of this month, and it's called called, How Parents Participate at Mass on a Full, Conscious, Active, and Fruitful Celebration by a fellow named Jake New. And this is something I think you will be able to relate to if you are a parent or grandparent. Uh, and, you know, actually, the article itself is pretty funny in some ways, and, and it's worth a read, I think, if you're interested. And I put a link in the show notes. But the main point is that he talks about being the father of young kids and, you know, standing in the vestibule, dealing with his little ones who are acting up while paying as much attention to the mass as he can, <laughs> which is not much. And then he asks, did I participate in mass? Maybe, he says, though only in the most general sense of the word. But did I fully, consciously, actively, and fruitfully celebrate the Mass? If my experience described above qualifies, I'm not sure what does not, as long as a person is in the building where Mass is said. And he, he relates how Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, declared such active participation, quote, the primary and indispensable source from which the faithful are to derive the true Christian spirit, unquote. And uh, how Pope Francis recently said, that it is not the mere rote action of the priest alone through which the graces of Mass flow, but rather the full participation therein by all. Francis adds, he says, that the laity should experience astonishment at the Paschal Mystery as an essential part of the liturgical act, and goes on to say the Pope's remarks you know, uh, are consistent with the liturgical reform movement from the mid-20th century. Uh, but he says, if I accept the words of Vatican II, Pope Francis, and the rest of the reform movement at face value, then I have to legitimately ask whether I have participated in Mass sufficiently to receive its graces in the last eight years. He says, I cannot remember the last time I have sat and heard an entire Sunday Mass with my family without being interrupted by my children. <clears throat> now, as a father of six, uh, I feel this guy's pain. My kids are all grown now, and I have grandkids, but 
I remember when my youngest daughter finally sat all the way through Mass one Sunday. I had that exact feeling. I can't remember the last time I heard an entire Sunday Mass with my family without being interrupted by my children, you know, from, you know, started changing diapers to hustling out fussy toddlers to, you know, accompanying the older ones to the restroom. For years, it was always something. And so the only comfort that I can offer this guy is that it doesn't last forever. But in any case, he puts his current dilemma thusly. The modern expectation that young children attend mass to learn the rites and be ready for communion by second grade merely adds to the problem. And I'll stop and point out that once upon a time, you know, before Pius X lowered the age for communion, Catholics typically received both First Holy Communion and Confirmation around the age of 12. Right? It's only in recent history that, uh, that children have been receiving communion. Uh, he says, for much of history, Mass was an adult ritual for adult prayer, and young children were not typically brought to Mass. Nursing mothers and others who cared for young children were typically excused from attending Mass, and that's true. And by the way, testimony from the second century reveals that men and women were originally segregated at Mass, and young children relegated to the back, not unlike the modern cry room. He goes on, though, but between the need to prepare children to receive communion and the concern that failure to expose children to mass from a young age might affect their later religious commitments in a secularizing world, parents are now admonished to bring their young children to mass. So I have to attend mass, I have to give it my full conscious and active participation, and I have to bring my children with me. This is an impossible dilemma. My wife and I have probably fully actively and consciously participated in an entire Sunday mass no more than 10 times in the last eight years. And this is where it gets good. Now, remember, this is a fellow who attends a Novus Ordo mass in English at his local cathedral church. And he says that he has to content himself with being in the building and paying attention as well as he can, try to maintain a prayerful attitude and be consoled that the words and actions of the priest bring Christ down to the altar whether he can pay all that much attention or not. And then he says, but what does that sound like? Is it similar to the way many people attended Mass before Vatican II? Because the entire purpose of the liturgical reform was to overcome such allegedly minimal awareness of the liturgical actions and such reliance on the priest's actions alone to affect the Mass. I can only say that if I surrender to such minimal participation, okay, let me say that again. I can only say that if my surrender to such minimal participation is a problem, it is not my problem. Rather, the theology of the liturgical movement must address the actual circumstances of Catholic parents and families. He's pointing out that, that good Catholic couples who do not contracept are likely to have several children over a period of years, and that such families are often called the future of the church. And such parents, he says, typically would actively participate at Mass, but their very vocation in life prevents them from doing so. And yet, he says, if the necessary full active and conscious participation uh, for receiving the graces of Mass means listening to the expanded lectionary and a pedagogical homily, paying rapt attention to the consecration and singing the hymns and other sacred music, then these adult Catholics who are rearing the future of the Church are routinely being denied such graces for several years. That just cannot be the case. And of course, he's correct.
You know, I spoke before about the importance that the Bible puts on participation in worship, but that takes many forms. Sometimes I think about the way people supposedly heard Mass before Vatican II, you know, making their private devotions, praying prayers from their prayer books, saying the rosary. Were these people not actively participating because they weren't making the responses along with the altar boys? You know, sometimes people who come to the traditional Latin Mass for the first time get overwhelmed. You know, they, they get lost trying to follow along in those little missalettes they provide. And I always tell folks that are new to the traditional Mass, just come a few times and let it wash over you before you try and follow along. Just come and experience. I mean, that's a, it's a much more profound experience than getting lost and frustrated trying to follow prayers that the priest is offering to God without your help. And sometimes when I go to the Novus Ordo and, and see, well, like I did last Sunday, you see people going through the motions. And I, I think it's a shame that the millions of heartfelt prayers that might be offered to God have been traded uh, for the rote recitation of liturgical formula that for many people are devoid of meaning. You know, an old lady telling her beads in the back of the church may well be offering a more pleasing participation in the liturgy than someone who's just reciting the, the responses like a robot. Now, I don't really know what was in the hearts and minds of the Catholics who assisted at Mass before Vatican II. I don't know how many were following along in their missiles or were simply content to remain in their usual torpor, as Paul VI suggested. And I've mentioned many times today that, uh, mentioned many times that today, uh, parishes that have both forms of the Roman Rite really do experience a, a mutual enrichment that was foreseen by Benedict XVI in his letter to the bishops after the publication of his motu proprio Samorum Pontificum. The celebrations of the ordinary form <clears throat> in such communities tend to be much more reverent and less apt to harbor liturgical abuse. And as far as the extraordinary form, the traditional mass is concerned, the many people that you see using hand missiles and making all of the responses would have warmed the heart of the liturgical movement's most fervent advocates of active participation, I'm sure. But what of Jake knew and his dilemma? What of Catholic parents who who uh, can't uh, really fully consciously actively participate because they're taking care of the, their kids? Well, he wraps up his article with these sage words. He says, I suspect these words about full, active, and conscious participation and pronouncements calling such participation indispensable or essential elements of the liturgy are meant to encourage the faithful in their devotion to the liturgy itself rather than to be taken too literally. The Mass still essentially occurs through the actions of the priest. Nothing in Vatican II changes this fact. And I really do receive the graces of the sacraments while tending to children, with however much or little attention I can give to any one Mass or liturgical action in it at the time. The truth is, I am not all that indispensable or essential, and that is a rather comforting thought. You know, I mentioned before that the general instruction for the Roman Missal says that Christ is present in his minister, in his word proclaimed, in, in the congregation when they pray and sing, and especially, of course, in the Blessed Sacrament. Well, as we learned the hard way during COVID tide, three of those things are essential, one is not, the exception being the congregation. Even when the churches were closed, 
The holy sacrifice continued around the clock and around the world without so much as the participation of a single altar boy. So Mr. New concludes, I can come to Mass as I am and pay attention to the liturgy as I am able, while the actions of the priest at the altar bring about the paschal sacrifice despite my limitations. And he quotes St. Peter from the Transfiguration, "'Tis good, Lord, just to be here." Amen to that. See, because he is right, that whatever your challenges, the most important thing is that you go to Mass because millions more Catholics stay home than fulfill their Sunday obligation. And you can't participate at all if you're not there. And that's no nonsense. All right. Uh, we have a, a few moments here before we uh, sign off for this week. And I wanted to mention, and if you're a, a monthly donor or if you subscribe to our emails, you've probably already heard about this. But um, I just wanted to mention the fact that <clears throat> you know a majority of Catholics have stopped going to Mass. And something like 87% of the Catholic youth today abandon the faith altogether by the age of 23. Now, you know, the, the Holy Scripture gives us the prescription. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train a child in the way he shall go, and he will not deviate from it even in old age. And Our Lady of Champion uh, appeared and, and said, Teach the children their catechism. And so we've got a new project where we're doing just exactly that. So I invite you to visit vmpr.org, go onto our homepage there, on the right of the masthead, you'll see a logo that says Catholic Resource Center Kids. Click on that. It will take you to our brand new YouTube channel where you can check out the first two series of catechetical videos we've done for children. Children really are the future. And it's up to you know us to make sure that they learn their faith early and carry it with them throughout their lives. All right? So I want you to check that out. And if it is possible... Please, this doesn't, you know, it, it's, we, we provide this stuff free, but it, but it isn't free to, to create. So if you can help us out with a, a donation, you click on the donate button while you're there, become a monthly donor. Please keep us in your prayers. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>